This is Top Ducks. I'm Mike Merrill. And I'm Ken Jacobson. And today we're talking to Debbie Lum about her documentary, Try Harder. I'll throw it over now to Debbie to tell us what the film is about. Try Harder follows seniors at San Francisco's number one public high school, a majority Asian American high school, as they try to get into the elite college of their dreams. That's a pretty succinct version of the film. As Debbie says, it follows a number of students as they make their way through Lowell High School that's here in San Francisco. I had a lot of personal connections to this because my oldest son just started college this year, which I will talk about in the course of the interview. And my wife is actually a graduate of Lowell. So I have some sense of how competitive Lowell is and how it's really a formative experience in people's lives. It really is. It's, I think, hard to overstate for people who don't live in the Bay Area, how unique and original Lowell High School is and how iconic it is in the history of the San Francisco public school system. She probably could have shot a version of this film at a lot of different high schools, but it certainly gave it a distinctive character by filming it at a majority Asian American high school. And I think there are simply not enough Asian American stories out there. And Debbie is doing a lot, I think, to restore some balance to the documentary world by telling these great, compelling Asian American and universal stories. So you, me, and Debbie all went to Brown University, albeit not at the same time, you and I did, but Debbie went later. And it's interesting that Brown becomes kind of a minor character in this film as at least one of the students ends up having a decision to make about Brown. Debbie, Ken and I all went to Brown, so we were all attended a competitive university, although well before this time. That's something that we talk a little bit about in the course of the interview, which is getting into college is not what it was when we were doing it. It's much harder. It's much more competitive. And the costs are so much higher than they were than when we went. Yeah, the odds are long. And as a result, the pressure is astronomical. You can see some of that tension play out through the relationships between the students and their parents who really just want the best for them. But so few get in that the application process just becomes torturous. And yet I feel like this film, in a way, is a Trojan horse to look at some of the modern dynamics between parents and children, where if the film was explicitly about that, it wouldn't probably have the same general audience appeal, but she manages to tell a great story about these different families, as well as the, the college story. Debbie Lum is a San Francisco-based filmmaker. Try Harder, and don't forget the exclamation point at the end, had its world premiere at the 2021 Sundance Film Festival and a screen at the Full Frame Documentary Film Festival, AFI Docs, Doc NYC, the LA Asian Pacific Film Festival, and festivals across the world. It won the Best Documentary Award in its category at the Dock Edge Film Festival in New Zealand. And it is nominated for the Cinema Eye Honors Audience Choice Prize. Debbie made her feature documentary directing debut with Seeking Asian Female in 2012, which had its world premiere at the South by Southwest Film Festival, aired on PBS's Independent Lens and won numerous awards, including Best of Fest at the Old Silver Docks. It also won Best Feature Documentary at CamFest and Outstanding Director at the LA Asian Pacific Film Festival. 
It was also profiled on This American Life. Previously, Debbie worked as a documentary editor. Her editing credits include the Emmy Award-winning AKA Don Bonus, Kelly Loves Tony, which she also co-produced and which was an IDA Best Documentary nominee, and To You, Sweetheart, Aloha. She has also written and directed several short comedies, Chinese Beauty, A Great Deal, and One April Morning. Try Harder will be released in theaters December 3rd in New York, LA, and the San Francisco Bay Area, and has its broadcast premiere on PBS's Independent Lens in the spring of 2022. Coming up, our discussion with Debbie Lum about her film, Try Harder. This film really meant a lot to me. I just had a son who finished high school in San Francisco. He did not go to Lowell High School. He's going to college this fall. So he started at UCSB, University of California at Santa Barbara this fall. And I got to tell you, I don't know if this is a common response to your film, but I cried a few times during this film. Do you hear that? Do you hear that from parents especially? Yeah, it's super emotional and intense. They laugh and cry. Yeah, we actually just saw it for the very first time in a theater with an audience last Sunday at the LA Asian Film Festival. And it was amazing to go through that with an audience. And I forgot how stressful it is. Oh my God, I got so stressed out watching my own film. But yeah, I, my heart goes out to you. I know exactly what that feels like as a parent, even though I haven't gone through it. I watched these parents go through it. And, you know, UC Santa Barbara, when we were growing up, it was like considered a party school, right? And now it's it was... Every year, it was like the kids go, okay, that's a harder and harder school to get into. We used to call it University of California Surfing Branch, and that was its reputation. And now it's funny because your films were a few years back, and you have a person who comes in sort of debunking a little bit the college admissions. He says a lot of radical things, and he's got a listing of the UC schools. And at the top is, is Cal or Berkeley. UCLA, and then San Diego, and then Santa Barbara. And this is how twisted I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. Santa Barbara is third now. And oh, by the way, UCLA, which I went to as a grad student and taught at, that's first. I, I couldn't believe that was my response. You're a wolf dad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's superhuman. We all went to Brown University here. And at Brown, it was like the anti-Ivy, I think. It was all about like artsy-fartsy, even actually... One of the parents, Donna, who's the mother of Rachel, thought Brown was too artsy-fartsy. But I think you're still keenly aware of rankings and competition as a human being. So even if it's like against your nature or your upbringing, that's exactly how you always frame it. Speaking of that, I had that experience. I looked at the, you know, Forbes just came out with its new ranking and UC Berkeley was number one. And I was like, okay, where was Brown? And we were, I believe, number 26, not only the lowest of the Ivies, but by far the lowest. We were like 10, 15 slots below the second lowest ranking Ivy. It's funny because when I made the film, I would tell the students my own background. Of course, they would want to know where I went to college and they would be sort of impressed. And then one of our main cinematographers, Kathy Huang, she went to Harvard and then they would be really impressed. Let me ask you one of our standard questions. Why do you make documentary films? Yeah, you know, it's kind of a really bad addiction, I think, that I need to, somebody needs to stop me from. <laughs> Help me. It's kind of a compulsion. That's sort of how I always feel. 
I started out thinking I would go into fiction. And actually the first film I ever worked on was The Joy Luck Club, way back. That's totally dating me. And then, you know, I kind of saw at the time that there was so little representation of the stories that actually really were meaningful to me that I organically got into documentary. Filmmaking of any kind is a creative process. There's something really interesting about how that interplays with real people and real stories. Probably in a nutshell, it's representation because there's just so few representations of so many important stories and people and communities. And that's what documentaries allow you to, to do. So you mentioned Joy Luck Club, which is, you know, kind of probably a semi-autobiographical novel. I used to teach it at UCLA and it was really got a good response from the students. I would talk about the way the mother character in the book was like my own mother. And it was really like kind of a universal story in some ways. You know what? I get a lot of, I remember at the time people told me it's actually a very Jewish story and not as much of a Chinese story. <laughs> Irish in my case, but yes. Debbie, you, you talked about representation and I would say over the last couple of decades as a filmmaker, you've been making films about the Asian American experience. And part of that, I'm sure, is unpacking certain stereotypes of Asian Americans. How do you strive with your work in general, would you say, and with this film in particular, to poke holes in those stereotypes and present a broader, deeper, and more accurate portrayal of the Asian American community? I love to kind of drill down into stereotypes and excavate the nuances and the complexities of you know these very simplistic ideas that people have and really show our community in a three-dimensional way, which is what we don't get very much of at all. And I think if you don't have those three-dimensional stories, I mean, this kind of gets back to your original question about why you do it. With everything that has happened recently with you know the rise of anti-Asian violence in the pandemic, which is just this recycling of this sort of historic anti-Asian violence that has happened throughout our history here in America. You realize that's the reason why it's because we, we don't have stories that show that look, we're human beings that people know and, and see. That's what I try to do in my films is to really just show people who have three dimensions. Maybe they've got some amazing heroic qualities and maybe they've got lots of weaknesses. And like in terms of try harder. I think the big stereotype that it explores this whole idea of the model minority. Stereotypes are one part true, and it is a stereotype for a reason. People think of Asian Americans as very studious nerds, academic machines sometimes. They're also thought of as like basically the competition. So it's really not with empathy and as if we're all on the same side of humanity often, I think. The thing I love about Try Harder actually is the, yes, okay, we were all kind of nerds. Anyone who goes to college, I think our generation, maybe we defined that term before when it was, before it was ever cool. But I think the model minority myth can be really crushing for so many kids. And what I love about Try Harder is that it's not just about academics and not really about getting into college. These kids are so much fun and so silly, and so adolescent, and just like teenagers everywhere. It's kind of crazy that that is not a given in my community. <laughs> this film is set at Lowell, which, as you say, is an Asian American majority student body. I believe you grew up 
in the St. Louis area. And I'm presuming that the high school you went to was probably majority white. Oh, yeah. It was mostly white. There was like one or two other people of color, like African-American, Asian-American. It was a different place, a different time. And if you were Asian-American, you basically were either invisible or you were a total outcast. When you entered the Lowell ecosystem, which is a very different makeup of the student body, what were your observations and feelings about engaging with a majority Asian-American student population? That was one of my real motivating factors for making the film. I actually just personally wanted to know what it would be like to be in a school where being Asian-American is the norm, or as I joked, it's like, it's normal. You're not a total, you know, freak. Like it felt, always felt like growing up in the Midwest. It is really different. It doesn't come without its own set of complications as well. But the students at Lowell High School could really, you know, if you were an academic nerdy student, it was a place where you wouldn't have to worry about being thrown up against a locker. One of the students said that to us. You could just be yourself. I think some of the things that are the complications are you're still a minority, even though if you're a majority within a high school in San Francisco, it's a tiny little bubble. Even though Asian Americans in our public school district make up over a third of the population. And actually, I think it's closer to 40, 40% sometimes. And then that's not even including kids who are mixed race Asian. When you look at it, really Asian American students are supporting the public school district. They stay in, in public schools, whereas white students will often move into private schools. There's still like the rest of the world is weighing down upon you maybe. So even if you're a third uh, of the population, in a school district, there's about 6% of the population in America that are Asian American. You're still a tiny minority. I mean, in my lifetime, it's gone from, I think, 1% to 6%. There are things like they don't really have Asian American studies classes at Lowell High School, even though public schools, there's a mandate for ethnic studies. Often the kids that are trying to get all their requirements so they can take these high achieving classes, if they take an ethnic studies class, it will not allow them to take AP physics or something like that, which they need to get into MIT. And often even ethnic studies, sometimes it doesn't include Asian America. We have so far to go still. How did this project come about? I was originally making a film called My Tiger Mom. I think the Tiger Mother memoir had come out not too long before. I really was going to follow down in Silicon Valley. I was going to follow a mother and a daughter in their last two years of high school trying to get into their dream college. My last film, Seeking Asian Female, was really like looking into this stereotype of Asian fetish and men with yellow fever. And it was a very kind of intimate story of just two people, plus the filmmaker, me. And that's what I imagined it would be. But it just took these twists and turns. And at one point, we met the students at Lowell High School because there was this crazy program they have at Lowell called the Lowell Science Research Program, where the high school students as young as like 14 are doing graduate level science research at UCSF Medical Labs, which is like the number one research lab in the country. And they're writing papers with the graduate students. We met the students. I could not understand a word that they were talking about. <laughs> and we just realized that like the students at the center of this whole college admissions equation are the ones that are kind of left out of it. 
we always think about them through the lens of parents. I could sense that they really wanted their story to be told. And that actually for an Asian American filmmaker is a really unusual feeling. This is a new thing. I've made docs for over 20 years and it's always, this is not what we do in our culture. We are a outward face facing culture. You don't share your private, your inner, you know, realities with the world. So it was just to have that, that was one of the big motivating factors for making the film. Early on the film, we meet Ian and he sort of becomes our guide. Maybe it's just a wild idea, but when I was watching him and he's talking about how it's like a prison and he's standing on the steps to go down into Lowell, I almost felt it was like Dante, you know, <laughs> descending into hell as our guide. Why did you choose Ian? Why did you choose this particular kind of approach to introducing us to the school? We loved how funny Ian is. We called him our Wes Anderson character. <laughs> we wanted to really be able to establish that this is going to be from the point of view of the students, the way he expresses himself with a lot of ums and ahs. And geez, this is this is the flagpole. It's, you know, it's not the most uh, erudite, eloquent way to t- talk about himself, which is really how a lot of teenagers are authentically, I think. It actually was a stretch to do that because there were times along the way, you know, we've got five characters, three of them were Asian American, are Asian American. We also have the high school itself was kind of this silent character in our minds. It was suggested to us a few times that, you know, we should really just have one of each ethnicity, one Asian American kid, one white kid, and one black kid. That just didn't seem right to me at all. And so Ian would have been one of those kids that would have hit the cutting room floor. What's really great about Ian is he's the one that helps you identify with these crazy high school geniuses that maybe if you weren't like that, he's the kid who just feels like a normal kid in a high school of like, you know, math and physics Olympian geniuses. The first parent who speaks directly to the camera is Ian's mom, Suzanne. And just as a a note here, Suzanne was actually uh, a contemporary of my wife who was at Lowell at the same time. She directly references Tiger Mom, says, I don't want to be a Tiger Mom. And she said, I wanted him to go to local school. Why don't you start with her of all the parents? She's kind of our, their story is kind of the moral to the story in a way. I really wanted to show, you know, like, obviously it's like the whole tiger mother stereotype, the model minority myth, they're all stereotypes. People come in all shapes and sizes. And there are so many Asian Americans that are not that sort of tiger mother stereotype. We just love the fact that Ian is multi-generational. San Francisco, Asian American. I think it's his grandfather or great grandfather that came to San Francisco through Angel Island. And both his parents actually went to Lowell High School. You know, many of his classmates were Asian Americans whose parents were more recent immigrants in the last, you know, decade or when they're 17 years ago when they were born. I think on a college application that maybe doesn't come out at all. You know, a kid like Ian Wong is not considered to be any different from a kid like Alvin Kai, whose parents, one was from Taiwan and one was from mainland China. Like you said, Ian's mom, Suzanne, went to Lowell High School and her father was born in San Francisco. So it, I think, yeah, that was certainly part of it. Plus, she's just such a great mom. <laughs> she is. And I also felt watching the film, and you mentioned earlier that she's kind of the, the moral to the story. I felt a little bit like she maybe was your stand-in about how you either think parents maybe could act, should act, or how you might like to 
behave as a parent yourself of somebody going through this process? The one thing about documentaries that makes me uncomfortable is that people always want to ask you, like, what do you think is what's your, and I, I make the film so that people can make their own decisions about it. And I don't really think that my particular way of parenting should be a role model. <laughs> my kids would probably say, uh, tiger, you know, she's such a tiger mom, even though I'm an artsy fartsy documentary filmmaker. Obviously, like there are many reasons why I identified with Ian and his story. I'm like fourth generation on my dad's side. We've been in, in this country for over five generations. And my mom grew up in New York City. And my parents, like I said, they encouraged me to be a filmmaker and to be an artist. The whole immigrant survival mode is something that they rebelled against my parents when they were young. So I certainly would say that. My background is more like Ian's. I also felt like growing up in the Midwest that the character I really identify with is actually Rachel, who's like, her mother's African-American, her father's white, and under, you know, 2% of the population at Lowell is African-American. And that's what it felt like. What she went through is sort of what I went through when I was going to school in St. Louis, Missouri. This obviously is a film about Lowell, but it's also a film about high achieving students everywhere and students everywhere. And I think it's probably pretty good to help explain to our audience the differences from college admissions and just getting into college and going to college over the past 20, 30 years. Cause you'll still hear people say things like, Oh, I worked my way through college, you know, that they just don't understand what it's like. What I taught at UCLA, we were accepting about 50%. So about half the students who were applying at that point were getting in. Today, it's a little over 10%, right? So it's about a fifth of what it used to be, even just a few decades ago. Mr. Shapiro points this out, says, hey, you know, it used to be, this is what my wife will tell you, you, used to, <laughs> you could get kind of a B average and do okay on your tests and you're to waltz into any UC you wanted. What's changed in that regard around admissions? There's a whole industry around college admissions. That should be another film that someone needs to really pick apart. The Common App is actually making it difficult for kids because they will easily apply to 10 colleges. Very commonly, they'll apply to 20 colleges because of the Common App. And people are applying to more than 30 colleges while they're trying to finish. It's like they're professional students with a more than full-time job. There's a little snippet in our film of a marketing video at the time that we made the film. The hardest college to get into in the U.S. was Stanford with under 5% admission rates. I was kind of surprised that Stanford University creates these marketing videos that go onto YouTube that, that tell you about the Stanford dream. It's showing you this, the beautiful ivory tower, like it's paradise. And I don't know, there's just too much. There's a whole industry around it. I feel like that part of it is one thing. The part that I was interested in exploring is really the personal element of it, which is as a parent, it's totally human to just want the best for your kids and to push them to have academic success, of course. And so you can see why parents get into a frenzy around getting their kid into what they feel like would be having the same level of achievement that they experienced when they were kids even though it's so much harder to do that. And there's not this understanding that actually colleges have shifted and the caliber of education has really been dispersed throughout. If your kid gets into a school like University of Massachusetts at Amherst, there will be the same genius students that are at Harvard, but there'll also be a diversity 
and it'll be a much bigger school. And I think parents get really concerned about like the rankings and what will be later. And it is understandable because college has become more like a high school diploma. The way that our economy is, it's just this growing divide. I think part of me making the film was wanting to take people through to the other side of that process so they could see what that's like. Because when you get to the other side, you're going to have a different perspective. Another thing that these particular students, several of them are facing, is the anti-Asian bias in admissions. There's a lawsuit that's actually made its way to the Supreme Court right now. Do you think there is anti-Asian bias and how does that affect their experience? That is like a really like controversial question in our community. I really wanted to show how people feel about it, how the students feel about it. Even the teacher feels this way and how the parents do. I think it's really complicated. I don't really know if there is an Asian penalty in college admissions, but there is an Asian penalty in life. (laughs) So, I mean, I think it's just this really emotional thing where, you know, kids who are Asian genuinely believe that if they define themselves as Asian, it is a count against themselves. And that to me is the thing that I wanted people to think about. It shouldn't be that way. You're making this film, you're casting for characters, you're casting for students, but you're also casting for parents. What did you find when you started to talk to parents about this film? We had kind of always imagined that the parents would be a separate film. Like I was going to keep making that My Tiger Mom film because it turned into more of an essay about mothers, obsessive compulsive mothers. And we actually imagined that the moms or the parents would be kind of like the parents and uh, Charlie Brown, (laughs) just like in the background. But then what happened was we actually met them and we were like, you know, we met Alvin's mom, Capri, who's an amazing, I love Capri. And she's quite a character when you get to know her better. And she's only really portrayed in a very, very slim way in the film. There's so many other facets to her. Most people aren't very familiar with Taiwanese culture, Chinese culture, and it would take a while to really understand her in a film because it's just never seen before. But once we met them, it was like they were scene stealers, like we couldn't not include them. That's what happened. Same with Rachel's mom, Donna. They're just such powerful figures in their lives that it was impossible not to give them a voice to. I wanted to ask you about something that Alvin says at one point where He says one wrong answer on a test could be the difference between an A and a B. And he runs through this whole potential cascading effect that could eventually cause the whole course of your life to change. You know, right or wrong, that analysis shows that there's tremendous pressure. Did you witness that kind of pressure on a regular basis at Lowell? That is a sort of very adolescent mentality. You're looking at your life through this framework of this one very slim period of time. Many kids felt that way. In some ways, I think that has a lot to do with peer pressure, actually, because the adults in the room were saying different things. The adults in the room were trying to steer them in other ways. And at the same time, they also knew the reality, which is it could make a difference. Ian's mom says that she discouraged him from taking AP classes. We had met Ian in junior year, and we, we overheard him having this argument with his friends. He's like, my mom won't let me take more than two AP classes these college level classes, like as a junior. 
And they were just giving him a really hard time about it. And that's what I witnessed, which is that sort of peer pressure, maybe where like kids used to be encouraging other kids to try out cigarettes or something. At Lowell, kids were encouraging each other to take harder classes and stay up all night. It was sort of a point of pride of how few minutes of sleep you could get at night sometimes. The other set of characters in the film are teachers and administrators, and the teachers show up a few times to kind of humorous situations. But the one teacher who stands out, of course, is Mr. Shapiro. We discover that Mr. Shapiro actually has to leave the classroom because he needs a liver transplant. How did you arrive at Mr. Shapiro? Why did you feature him so prominently? Mr. Shapiro was is the reason why there is a film called Try Harder. You know, without him, we wouldn't have been able to make the film. He's just like this amazing human being who had taught at Lowell when we met him for 27 years at Lowell alone, not to mention being in the district before that. I think he had started out working in the science industry and then became a teacher. He is the person who created that Lowell Science Research Program that I was mentioning before. And it was through him that we met all of the students at the very beginning. And his sort of, you know, he's a science teacher, and yet he's also an artist at heart. He's lived in Portrero Hill for his adult life, and he's that kind of classic San Francisco, progressive, artistic person. His wife was a photographer and a painter. And so he totally appreciated the artistic process. Like his physics classes were philosophy classes, really, for his, these high achieving, super nerdy kids. He was sort of always in there. I just never imagined that that would happen. He didn't really tell us that until it was happening. And it was really heartbreaking, actually. It was harrowing. We didn't know if he was going to make it. The scene where he tells the students is one of the scenes that made me weep. And I think it's because of the love that you could feel from the students. They really, truly love him. Alvin truly loves him. And you can feel that. It's pretty amazing. And my wife, who went to Lowell, said this was often the case of these teachers. Their, their love for their work and for their students was evident. How is Mr. Shapiro doing? He's doing great. You know, he actually retired last year. Lowell was the first high school to shut down during the pandemic. The high schools in San Francisco were not open, basically, until this fall. So it was like a, a weird way for him to finish out his last over 30 years of teaching at Lowell online. But otherwise, he's doing really well. I wanted to ask you about Rachel and her mom, Donna. They're two of my favorites in the film. They're incredible. And it's their relationship that's so amazing. Rachel describes her mom as her best friend at one point. And yet they're going through this incredibly stressful process, like all these other students of Rachel applying to colleges. How did that process play out in terms of their relationship over the course of this year? Rachel is such a wonderful human being. She's so open and really actually a gifted writer too. But her mom also is pretty gifted, I think. And she really knew what she was doing. It was so interesting to watch because at times we were like, oh my God, that is so much pressure. Don't do that. That seems really intense. Like her mom really was very, very keenly aware of the college admission cycle. I remember this wasn't in the film, but you know, that they were getting advice from college experts or their counselor. Donna would always be like, no, don't listen to them. You know, we're going to do it this way. And we would be like, I don't know. Should she, should they do that? And then there's that scene where she, Rachel is in that Harvard group interview. That in itself is insane. 
then the story she tells about her mom and practicing the interview and her mom saying, okay, that was wrong. Don't do that in the interview. And that kind of thing was all the time. They would sit there and they would actually review everything about Rachel and what she should do and, and who she should take to the prom and everything. It was like, in a way, it sounds like, oh, helicopter, tiger, you know, all the terrible things about parenting, but it wasn't like that at all. Like you said, they had this really intimate relationship. They're each other's best friend. Her mother, like, coddled her and also set her up for independence at the same time. I mean, it was just like, in many ways, I would say she's kind of my role model. That's who I learned a lot from in terms of how you should raise your kid. Alvin does apply to 26 colleges and he does get into UC San Diego and to Cal, UC Berkeley. He seems to really want to go to San Diego and Mr. Shapiro actually encourages him. San Diego is a great school and there are all these research opportunities. It's actually quite well known for that. But he does end up at Berkeley at Cal. And in those scenes, I have to say, I get the sense he's not thrilled. Yeah, he really wanted to go to San Diego. His mentor at UCSF Medical Lab came out of San Diego. So he actually personally knew the researchers there and he really still to this day wants to be a neurosurgeon. So it really was a good idea for him to go to San Diego on many levels. My sister's a doctor. Shout out to my sister because she's like just became the chair of surgery at her hospital. She's in this like tiny club of like five women in this country who are like that. She told me that when she was applying to medical schools, San Diego Medical School was like the top it's, it's always been in the top 10. It's just like a really great place to study. If you're interested in doing medicine, which Alvin is, this like disconnect, I think parents have this idea of what should happen. You have to kind of weigh that with the reality of how it is, which doesn't fall into, you know, a simple paradigm. But at the same time, I think he made the most of his college experience at Berkeley. One of the reasons why this is such a great topic is because it raises the question of whose choice is this? The college admissions process occurs in this kind of liminal space between children and parents. Maybe the first moment where the child is thinking, I'm 17, 18, this is my decision. Whereas the parent has reasons for thinking, I need to guide this student all the way up to, I need to make this decision. Were there any really eye-opening moments for you as the filmmaker observing this dynamic between parents and children about this question of whose choice is this? Yeah, that's the uh, $64,000 question. It should be their choice. It's their choice. You're not the one going to college. It's their mistake that they need to make, actually. That really is the moral to this. The one thing I can say is I watched 17 and 18-year-old kids physically and literally and, and spiritually, emotionally grow up, change over, transform in one year, which I was really surprised by because I don't remember doing that myself in high school. <laughs> and I don't think you've thought about high school from that perspective as a parent. I felt really privileged to, and we felt very lucky that Lowell High School opened up their doors to us because we got to see that. And then just like the proof in the pudding that I often tell parents is because people will be like, well, how do you really get into college? And I think the ones that actually have the so-called best, quote unquote, highest, best outcome, whatever, highest ranking schools, their parents had very little to do with it. it it's like everything in life. It's your timing. If your child is peaking, right? You know, like if they're 
peaking right around, if it's early, decisions <laughs> right around Thanksgiving when they're due, or if they're peaking right around December 31st, they're going to get into college. And then actually our Lowell, remember our character who's like the Lowell God? He's like the mythical figure that gets into every single college. He, in an interview that we didn't include, said that he might have done really well in high school, but that probably means that in the next 10 years, he's going to fail at something really big. Like the next time around, it won't be his turn, you know? And I think that's probably true in life when you look back on it. There's one junior in the film. It's Shay. He's a white student. What attracted you to Shay when you were casting the film? And why is it important that Shay is in this movie? Shay's an incredible kid. They all are, you know, really incredible kids. Obviously, he was quite gifted in physics, taking a physics class that was all with seniors when he was a junior. Many of the students whose stories we looked at in depth had to do with us just finding them so lovable. There's certain qualities about them. And the interesting thing is that, again, it's a spoiler, but the ending of the film and, and how it turns out, we sort of always felt was like, it's like the cheese that you give the mouse and they press the bar and then it starts to cycle all over again. And in a way that's maybe the, you know, most potent answer to that question. But I also think that like, there's this thing that he says in the beginning of the film, which is like, he, he's a kid of Divorced parents, when we first started filming him, he was actually getting evicted from his home in San Francisco, which is such a San Francisco thing in and of itself. His dad wasn't doing so well, but if he lived with his mom in Sausalito, he wouldn't be able to go to Lowell. That's like the reason why Lowell High School exists and has existed since 1856. It's a public high school for kids who need it. That was one of the reasons, like internally, we might've joked that he's like our token white kid. <laughs> but in truth, his story was just so compelling that it was hard not to, it was impossible not to keep it in. What do you think of the changes to Lowell? So for our audience, Lowell was a highly selective school. It's now becoming a lottery school. My heart goes out to the Lowell community because they've been through an awful lot over the last several years and they're always in the limelight there's always been a lightning rod of controversy around Lowell High School over the decades, but they're also not unlike a lot of other public high schools in the country that are entrance exam based admissions. Stuyvesant High School in New York City is a really famous one. Boston Latin did exactly what Lowell, they did to Lowell, which is they removed the entrance exam in order to try to create more kind of racial equity, I think. I hear it from all sides. And I think obviously the parents, even the students that have been working since kindergarten towards achieving this academic goal of getting into Lowell feel like the rug was pulled out underneath them because now they can't get into Lowell based on taking an exam and they feel like it's unfair to them. And yet I think a lot of people feel like the test in and of itself is unfair because it favors kids who live in better districts or have tutoring for test prep or whatever. I mean, it favors kids who are nerds. I don't know. <laughs> um, and at the same time, I've heard students who got in under the test and had a really stressful high school experience and they feel like, oh, maybe this is going to relieve some of that pressure. But then you also hear like the kids who have gotten in 
on the lottery feel like imposters. We all just need to relax a little bit, I think. One thing that hasn't changed is the San Francisco public school systems are messed up. That's been the case for decades and why I ended up growing up in San Mateo and not San Francisco, where I was born and went to school through first grade. And then my parents were like, we're out of here. For the record, I have two kids in the public schools. I have twins at Presidio right now, but we're thinking about high school in the past year and a half or so of public schools have made us wonder about whether or not we should go to public high school. Yeah, it's really complicated. And every public high school teacher, public school teacher I've met in San Francisco is really amazing. They're like really committed. They work their tails off. And then you hear what happens to them and to the schools and it just doesn't make any sense. Again, I'm not the expert, but a school board position, it's not a paid elected position. So it's kind of self-selecting and they're making lots of decisions that maybe aren't coming from the community. The one thing I will say is that the problem of Lowell not being diverse enough is a problem that begins in pre-K and all the way up through middle school. That is where it needs to be addressed. Debbie, can you tell us a bit about your impact campaign and how people can learn more about what you're doing around the film? Please visit our website, tryharderfilm.com impact. Basically, our campaign recenters students at the heart of college admissions by looking at mental health and DEI. We'd love to show our film in high school communities and in parent communities, also to counselors and even the gatekeepers in the college admissions process, and really take a deep dive and look at mental health and provide not just resources, but also a way to discuss what's happening to our kids, to students in a way that's personal and meaningful please like connect with us and reach out to us and tell people to see it because we really do feel like this is a film that will open people's eyes and make them consider the meaning of everything in high school and college admissions. It's been, I think, about four years since you shot the film. How are all the students doing now? They're great. Yeah, they've almost all graduated from college. Sometimes they come along. They often come to the Q&As. Alvin said when he saw it, he's like, I feel like watching it as a quote unquote adult, almost finished with college that he wished he could have given his high school self a big hug and just say, it's going to be okay. That's what our campaign is all about, to reduce the, the stress around this very pivotal point in your life so that you can think clearly and just appreciate it. I want to alert our audience to the fact that the film is opening in theaters on December 3rd in New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco, and then perhaps more cities after that. So we urge everybody to go out and support this documentary in the theater. It's a great way to experience the film. It's amazing for a documentary to get a theatrical release. And given that it's in COVID, it's really, really tricky, but we really want to be able to show the box office support and show the love in the box office so that more films like ours can get out there, especially films that have Asian Americans as protagonists. If you want to know more about our theatrical release on December 3rd, you can go to Greenwich Entertainment. The way it works, especially during COVID, you can do group sales, you can buy out theaters if you're really super passionate or you want some free college coaching advice. 
<laughs> not free, but for the same cost, depending on how we do that opening weekend in the major markets of New York, LA, and San Francisco, they will release it to other markets. People want to find out more, they can go to Greenwich Entertainment as well as our website. Tryharderfilm.com. I just wanted to ask you, I saw that Tony Shea was one of your executive producers. Did you know Tony? That was something that was so sad for me because when we got funding from Tony Shea through XTR Films, I just felt like, oh my God, this is like a, this is a personal career, a rewarding moment. It's like a real struggle to make films about the Asian American community and then to have such a important figure of our business community to support the film. It was so uplifting. And then to find out that he had passed away not long after that was so sad for me. His story is a little bit like these little kids, very high pressure, high achieving. And he was always promoting happiness, kind of like Ian in our films. I'd say anyone who ever went to school will enjoy this. It's about a particular school, but it's also about everybody. It's about pressure and it's about ambition and achievement and in some cases quote-unquote failure but failure that actually is success so it's uh, a wonderful film and uh, i really loved it if there is such a thing as a selective admissions process for documentaries you have made it into the most elite level debbie congratulations to you and your entire team and thank you so much for being with us today thank you do you have a hidden gem, a documentary that maybe you've watched in the past or even more currently that you think doesn't get the attention that it should? I have to, of course, talk about Spencer Nakasaka, who was my mentor. He made a documentary called AKA Don Bonus back in the day. It won an Emmy and it went on POV, but a lot of people don't know about it today. And actually I was one of the editors on that film. It was about a Cambodian American refugee who literally filmed, he himself filmed his last year of high school at a San Francisco public school and was going through tons of stuff at the time. And it was like, back then, high eight camcorder technology was the most amazing technology available. He literally just carried it around with him for a year and filmed, and we saw his whole world through his eyes. Thank you.